Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see all of you this morning. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Jason, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. If you're a first-time visitor with us this morning, welcome. We're thankful that God has brought you here this morning to worship with us. I'd like to draw your attention now to the living and active Word of the Lord as we find it in the 39th Psalm. If you weren't here last week, which I know many of you weren't, over Memorial Day weekend, we are taking a break over the summer, as we often do, from our study in the book of Genesis, and we're going to sequentially be going through several of the Psalms. And so the Psalm before us this morning is Psalm 39. We'll be looking at that Psalm in its entirety, so let me read all 13 verses to you. And before I do, I remind you as always, brothers and sisters, that what we are about to hear read is the word of the living God. And so may we tremble before it as such, may we humble ourselves before it as such, and may we receive it from our Father's gracious hand as such. Psalm 39. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, Make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's thank Him for it. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do thank you for your word. 
And we humbly acknowledge together that even as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways, and your thoughts than our thoughts. And so we acknowledge together that we are incapable of understanding your word unless your spirit illumines our hearts and our minds. Therefore, we pray that you would use your word that goes out from your mouth so that it would not return to you empty, but that it may accomplish that which you purpose and may succeed in the thing for which you sent it. Do this in our midst now, we humbly pray. And we ask these things confidently in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, perhaps one of the most difficult experiences in the Christian life is when a Christian goes through a season of despair. And there may be many reasons why a Christian goes through a season of despair. Maybe because they're facing their own impending death. Maybe because they're facing the death of someone that they love. It may be because they're under the heavy hand and discipline of the Lord for their sin. It may be because of the suffering that they're experiencing in some way, shape, or form, either externally or internally. It may be because of any number of reasons, because of the various things that we suffer in this fallen world. And one of the things that makes a season of despair for a Christian so difficult is that they begin to doubt whether they are even a Christian. I don't know if you've ever experienced a season like that and you think, can a Christian really feel this way? Feel so distant from God? Doubt Him? Question Him? Struggle so intensely? And let me just still your conscience right there. Who wrote this psalm? David. Who is David? He's the man after God's own heart. And so if he experienced that, we should take comfort, as hard as it is to go through a season like this, to know that we will likely go through it as well. And if that doesn't comfort you, perhaps what will comfort you even more is to know that the ultimate singer of this psalm is our Lord and Savior Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see that as we continue to work our way through this psalm. Another way that this psalm is helpful, though, is if you've ever been in a season of intense suffering where you feel like you're just despairing, is words come short, don't they? Don't know what to say. It's hard to string thoughts together in your own private mind. It's hard to know what to pray. And so a psalm like this actually gives us words to say to the Lord. And perhaps along those lines, this psalm is most valuable in that it shows us the kind of candor and openness that we can have with the Lord as we feel ourselves despairing in a fallen world, in the presence of our enemies, as we face death, as we're under the heavy hand of the Lord's discipline for sin. And so this psalm has much for us this morning. Whether you're in a season of despair right now, or if you're not, you're like, man, I've never been happier in my Christian life. So what does this psalm have to say to me? It has to say to you, Buckle up and prepare, because this happens to almost every single one of us at least once. And so as we learn from this psalm, I want us to look at the lessons under three headings. Three headings that the 
psalm naturally falls out into. First of all, we're going to look at David's silence in verses 1 through 3. We'll see that David, in this particular circumstance, resolves himself to guard his mouth, to be silent so that he doesn't sin. And we'll see that God requires that of us, and it's very wise in a season of affliction like this to just be quiet altogether. Secondly, we'll look at David's vanity. And by that, I don't mean that David is vain, although that might have been true. What I mean is David reflects on the reality that his life is short. His life is brief. And he asks the Lord to teach him deeply that truth. So we'll look at David's silence, David's vanity, and then lastly, and you'll be very happy to know there is hope in this psalm, we'll look at David's hope in verses 7 through 13. It's kind of hard to see in some ways. Because David's struggle is one that's up and down. But what we'll see is that David very clearly looks to the Lord as his hope in this fallen world. And so, brothers and sisters, my hope and prayer this morning is that the Lord will use his gospel, as we find it in Psalm 39, to heal with the balm of the gospel your weary soul and to prepare you for what may lie ahead in the Christian life. So let's look first then at David's silence as we find it in verses 1 through 3, looking first at the superscript and verse 1. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. The superscript is in the original Hebrew. That's why I'm reading it to you. David is the author of this psalm, and he wrote it to the choir master, to a particular one, to Jeduthun who was one of the musicians in the temple of God. We learn about him in First and Second Chronicles. And here's what we find David saying, him resolving in the midst of his despair. He says in verse 1, I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. Now, we know from Scripture elsewhere that we're admonished and commanded time and time again to guard our mouths, aren't we? God has given us the powers of speech as His image bearers to use our words for the benefit of those around us and for the glory of God. And yet we know, and we'll spend a little more time on this in a bit, that we fail in that in many ways, don't we? Under the best of circumstances, we fail in that. And so David, knowing that, says, because I know my suffering so great, and I'm despairing, and I'm particularly tempted out of the abundance of my heart, says Jesus, to misuse my speech, I'm going to guard my mouth. I'm going to be careful in what I say. And he says that for two reasons. He makes this resolution for two reasons. First of all, in the first half of verse 1, he says, I will guard my ways. What ways? His speech, that I may not sin with my tongue. His first reason for his resolution is, I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin against God. And I know as I'm suffering right now that nothing good is going to come out of my mouth. It's not going to benefit my neighbor and it's not going to glorify God. So I'm going to guard it so I don't sin against God. The second reason that he gives is in the second half of verse 1. He says, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle Why so long as the wicked 
are in my presence. He doesn't just want to not sin against the Lord in what he says. He says, I'm also in the presence of my enemies, of unbelievers. And so if I open my mouth in sin and rail against God and rail against my enemies, the unbelievers around me, they're going to see that as an opportunity to deride God and to deride me. And I don't want to afford them that opportunity with my speech. And so what are we seeing here? We're seeing that this is something that is required of us, brothers and sisters. What does James say in James 1 verse 26? He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. If we are not growing and pursuing self-control over our speech, James says, your religion's worthless. It means nothing. You, you show that, it, that your walk with the Lord is not true in the things that come out of your mouth. And I love the fact that David uses the word guard here. He uses it twice. You see it there. I will guard my ways, verse 1. I will guard my mouth. And in the Hebrew, that word guard there is the same Hebrew word that Moses uses in Genesis chapter 2.15 when he says that God created man to tend the garden, to work it, and to keep it, to guard it. Same word. And so what David is saying here is he's saying, listen, the whole reason that the world is the mess that it is, is because God created Adam as a priest to guard the garden temple that he created in Eden, to keep anything unclean out, and yet Adam failed to guard it as he ought to. And the serpent came in, an unclean animal, and tempted his wife, and now here we are, because Adam failed. And so David says, I am not going to fail in guarding what God has entrusted to me, my mouth, and I've got to be particularly vigilant because the serpent is still slithering around tempting God's people to abuse their powers of speech against him and against others. So we see David's resolution here to guard his mouth, but then it gets kicked up a notch. Look at verse 2. Not only does he guard his mouth, but then in verse 2 he says, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. So he doesn't just guard his mouth. He's not just keeping himself from saying bad things. Now David says, you know what? I'm imposing upon myself. I'm not even saying good things. He's just, you ever, you ever suffer like that? I just have no words. I don't really have any interest in saying anything. That's where David is. And he thinks that this will help. But what does he say at the end of verse 2? And my distress grew worse. You ever experienced that? Man, it just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse as I suffer. And the reason it's getting worse and worse is because what's happening in his heart? Look at verse 3. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Can you relate to this? You're like, you know what? Life is so tough, I don't really have anything to say. And so you reflect you muse, you meditate on how your enemies seem to have the upper hand, on how the hand of the Lord seems to be so heavy upon you as He disciplines you for your sin, as you're suffering, 
as you're maybe facing your own death, and as you mold these things over, your heart just burns. It's language similar to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 20. It's like fire shut up in my bones. And so David says, I've got to just let it out. I've got to let this fire out. And we're going to see in verse 4 where he or who he turns to, because it might surprise you a bit. But before we jump to verse 4, I think it's appropriate, brothers and sisters, that we apply this to ourselves. I think it's very wise for us to reflect on the fact that when we're suffering, when we're despairing, our hearts will often be in such a place that not much good is going to come out of our mouths. Again, James tells us when we're suffering, what? To be quick to listen and slow to speak. And so it's very wise for us to put a guard over our mouths under all circumstances, but especially when we're suffering, and to perhaps even fall silent. But what's the sad reality? We already talked about this a little bit. The sad reality is we, especially when we're suffering, abuse the gift of speech that God has given us, don't we? We try to control the people around us with harsh language, harsh words, harsh attitudes, and we grumble against the Lord like the Israelites did in the wilderness. And so I don't think I have to spend much time on this. You can reflect on your own life and see how frequently you are sinful in your speech. And so here's the thing, even as we reflect on the command of the Lord, Jesus says what? You're going to give an account for every word that comes out of your mouth. That's a terrifying reality. Just reflect on this last week on the things that came out of your mouth. And so even as we reflect on this and apply it to ourselves, do you know where we have to start? We have to look to the one, David's greater son, who never sinned in his speech, not even once. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because when you look at Jesus' life and ministry, what you find is a man who in every word that he said, every intent behind it was to benefit man. Even when he had hard things to say, it was to the benefit of man and it was to the glory of God. Not once did Jesus stumble in what he said. James says that's impossible for a human. It's not impossible for Jesus. And we see this with particular clarity. When Jesus is in his most dire situation. David's here in one of his most dire situations. We see his greater son Jesus on trial in Matthew 26 verse 63. And false witnesses are being brought against him. They're lying, flat out lies about Jesus. And what does Matthew say is Jesus' response? Matthew says in Matthew 26, 63, that Jesus remained silent. You see, Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy concerning him as the suffering servant in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 2.23. 
He says, when he was reviled, speaking of Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, brothers and sisters, if you take two seconds to reflect on this, this is incredibly good news. Because why did Jesus come and do this? Why did he fulfill all righteousness in regards to speech? He did it to the glory of God, and he did it for your sake and for mine. He did it because that track record of perfectly glorifying God and benefiting his fellow man with his speech, that track record is now accounted as yours and mine before the tribunal of God. God looks at us in Christ and says, In Christ, you've perfectly used your speech because you've got his track record. All of his righteousness is now counted as your own. And you know that punishment that you deserve for speaking to your kids harshly, for speaking to your spouse, your co-worker, for grumbling against me? You know the punishment that you deserve? All of that was spent on Jesus on the cross. Every last drop. Brothers and sisters, we have to start there. Look to Christ as our substitute. And then know that because we're united to Him, now it's our privilege to follow Him as our example. And learn to have speech that is seasoned with grace. Because our hearts have been marinated, as it were, in His glorious gospel. And what He's accomplished for us. And by His grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll grow in that more and more so that we'll actually be surprised at the speech that comes out of our mouths in suffering. Because He will do that gracious work in us. And so we need to reflect on that even as we reflect on how wise it is. And we're commanded to be slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to become angry. Now, as we connect back to the end of verse 3, you think, all right, so David's heart is burning, he's guarding his mouth, and now he's going to speak. He's going to open his mouth. Here it comes. Remember, he's in the presence of his enemies, and he's suffering under the hand of God. He's going to blast God and his enemies, right? No, it's not what he does. Instead, in verse 4, what we see is that he turns to the Lord in prayer, asking him to teach him the lesson that his life is like a vapor. It's like a breath, here today, gone tomorrow. And so let's look in our second point in verses 4 through 6 at David's vanity. David's reflection on the fact that his life is so short and that the Lord needs to teach him that. Look at verse 4 with me. David says, O Lord, O Yahweh, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Now, I've got to tell you, I read some commentators, John Calvin in particular, this past week, who think that in verses 4 through 6, David's actually suffering so intensely and has so despaired that he's asking the Lord to just end him. Lord, make me know my end. Just, just, just finish me off right here. Just destroy me. That's how far gone David is. And while I, I can't entirely, completely rule out that interpretation... I'm not convinced that's what David is doing here. And I hope as we walk through the text, I actually convince you and you're able to see why that's not the case. What I believe David is doing here is he's saying, Lord, help me to contemplate the shortness of my own life. 
He says twice, make me know this. Make me know my end. Let me know how fleeting I am. And that word choice of know is really, really important. That Hebrew word there doesn't have with it this idea of just, hey, Lord, tickle me intellectually. Don't just teach me something that I can know intellectually in my head. No, that's not how he needs to know this truth. He already knows it in that way. No, the word know here is the way, the Hebrew word for, that's used for how God knows his covenant people. Intimately, perfectly, closely. It's the same Hebrew word for how a husband knows his wife. And how a wife knows her husband. It's not just an intellectual assent. It's, I have completely given myself over to this reality. It's deep within me. Become a part of who I am. And so David's saying, Lord, please teach me this truth. I need to know it more than ever as I am in despair and suffering. And what is that truth? Again, we've already talked about it. The brevity of his life. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days, because you've measured them. Let me know how fleeting I am. How fleeting is David? Look at verse 5. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you because you're eternal. You have no beginning, you have no end. And then I'm going to save the last line there in verse 5 because we're going to unpack that quite a bit. But do you hear what David's saying? And do you hear the despair and the desperation? David's saying, hey, Lord, you want to measure my days? I mean, you're the one that authored them, so you know. But, you know, you you don't need a really long tape measure. You don't need one of those tape measures. I remember in high school, my high school football coach had one of those long tape measures so they could measure how long the field should be. Lord, you don't need one of those. And you don't need some crazy arithmetic, mathematical calculation. You want to know how long my life is? It's a few hand breaths. What's a hand breadth? It's literally the breadth of your hand, the width of it, about four inches. So my life is a few hand breaths. There you can measure it, Lord, eight to 12 inches. That's how short my life is. So do you sense his desperation here? He's saying, Lord, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. And you see, David doesn't just tell the Lord in his prayer that his life is so short. He tells the Lord why his life is so short. He tells us why. Look at that last line of verse 5. He says, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Did you catch it? You're like, no, I didn't. The one or two of you in here who can read Hebrew might have just caught it. Here's the thing, we miss it in English. We miss it in the translation. But that word there, surely all mankind, that word mankind in the Hebrew is, let me say it for you, Adam. Whose name does that sound like? Adam's. Our covenant head. The first man ever created. And so what David is saying is, surely all in Adam stand guilty. Now that's not the way God created us. We know that because we've been going through the book of Genesis. The Lord created us innocent and holy to enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. And yet man forfeited that when he did what? When he disobeyed God. 
when he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's the thing, that sin of Adam is imputed to each and every one of us as soon as we're conceived in the womb. And so we're guilty. That's what David's saying. His sin, Adam's sin, is imputed to us, Lord. And so why is our life so short? Because in Adam, we all stand guilty. Now, it's interesting because he takes us back to Genesis again at the very tail end of verse 5. Surely all mankind, Adam, stands as a mere breath. That word breath there, same word for Abel's name. Remember that in Genesis chapter 4? Chad had mentioned to us that Abel's name literally means breath or vapor. It was a foreshadowing that his life was going to be short. You remember in Genesis 4, Cain rises up in jealousy and hatred against his brother and strikes him dead because God accepted Abel's offering in faith and rejected Cain's. And so Cain strikes down his brother. Why did that happen? Because of the fall. Never would have happened if Adam hadn't eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what David is saying is, because we're all guilty in Adam, and the wages of sin is death, we all now die. We're all now Abel's. We're a mere Abel. We're a vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow. Because the curse of God, the wrath of God, is upon us for Adam's sin and for our own sin. And so David shows us, look, this is why this is the case. Lord, make me know this. Make me know what James says in James 4.14. He says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He says, your life is here today and it's gone tomorrow. Now, you may be sitting there wondering, man, are you stretching that, Jason, him taking us all the way back to creation? Well, let me prove to you with yet more evidence that I'm not stretching it. Look at verse 6. He takes us back to creation again. Just look at that first line there in verse 6. He says, surely a man goes about as a shadow. That word shadow there in the Hebrew, it's the same word that Moses uses to describe how God creates Adam in his image in Genesis 1.27. In the image of God, he created him. God created man in his own image. Same Hebrew word. And so what's David saying? He's saying, Lord, we still bear your image, but it's marred now. We don't glorify you the way that we ought to. You created us to bring glory to your name, to work in the garden and be fruitful and multiply, create little image bearers from sea to shining sea so that they would glorify you all upon the face of the earth. And yet after the fall, that's not what we do, is it? Instead, what do we do? We try to clamor and live for our own glory. That's what he goes on to say through the rest of verse 6. Look at the rest of verse 6. Surely for nothing, nothing, same word for Abel, surely a breath, surely a vapor. They are in turmoil. Surely all these image bearers who are vapors now because they're under your wrath, they're in turmoil. Literally, that Hebrew word there is they roar, they clamor, they make noise, they try to live for their own glory now, Lord, rather than yours. Isn't that what we see at the Tower of Babel? Why do they build that tower? To make a name 
for themselves, not to glorify the Lord. And so why do we labor now? Why do we toil? Look at the rest of verse 6. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. All of his work is in vain now because it's not done for the glory of God. Pretty dark stuff, isn't it? And here's the fascinating thing. David says, Lord, this is what I need to know more than anything else. As I'm despairing, as I'm suffering, I need to know this truth like you know me. I need to know this truth like I know my spouse. You need to press it deep down inside of me. That I'm a vapor because I'm an Adam and so I'm an Abel. (laughs) And all of my work that's done for myself and not for you is just vanity. Because I worship and fallen man worships the creation rather than the creator. And you see, the whole reason David is praying this prayer, you may be wondering, why in the world is David praying for this? Well, Moses answers that question, actually. I had Russ read it this morning in Psalm 90 and verse 12. Moses writes, So teach us to number our days. Why? Help us to contemplate the shortness of our own lives. Why? So that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's the same sentiment as in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. You remember the preacher says there, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. I bet if I took a poll right now, said, Who would rather go to a wedding over a funeral? I bet most people would raise their hands. I'd rather go to a wedding. You don't want to know why? You think, man, this is great. This is wonderful. The life that lays before them. Joy, celebration. Of course you'd rather go to a wedding. The preacher and Moses say, you know how you get a heart of wisdom? It's better to go to a funeral. Because as you stand before that open grave, as you look at that casket, or if there's a viewing, if you look at, as you look at that corpse, you should reflect on the fact the living will lay it to heart. You stop and you realize, you know what? All the activity, everything that I'm doing, someday I'm going to end up just like that. Just like that corpse. I'm going to end up in a coffin as well. My life is going to end. We don't like to do that, do we? You're probably uncomfortable with me bringing it up even now. A lot of people don't like to go to funerals, or if you watch them, many won't go up and talk to the family. What do you say to somebody when their family member just died? It's awkward. Or think about retirement homes. We put people that are closer to death than we are so far as we know. We put them in homes by themselves, and we don't want to go visit them. We don't want to go see them. Why? Because as we look at them, we're reminded of our own mortality. And so we run. And we distract ourselves. I don't want to think about my death, my own death. And what David says here, what David knows, what Moses says, what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes is, that's how you get wisdom. Now here's the question, how? How does David get wisdom from this? And how will this comfort him in his situation? Well, I think there's many reasons that could be given, but let me just highlight two. First of all, it reminds him that his suffering is not going to last forever. Like, oh, that's real hopeful. That's true. 
We'll see later in the last section of this psalm, David understands that the hell that he's going to experience is in this life, not the next. This is as bad as it gets for David. And so he's comforted with knowing this suffering is not going to carry over with me into the next. And so my suffering has boundaries, my despair, the discipline of the Lord, my life, and it's the Lord who has made my days a few handbreadths. And so I take comfort in that. Eventually, this suffering is going to end. The second way I think that he gets some comfort from this and gets a heart of wisdom is, remember, he's in the presence of his enemies. One of the ways he's suffering is he's like, it seems like my enemies are winning. And so as David reflects on this, he realizes they're a vapor too. They're just roaring and clamoring to no end, and then the Lord's going to wipe them out, and then they will be sent to eternal judgment. Because justice will be met upon them. And so this is how David gets a heart of wisdom. And brothers and sisters, this is how we can get a heart of wisdom when we're suffering as well. But here's the question. Is this where you go when you're suffering, when you're despairing? I already alluded to this. I don't think most of us do. Most of us spend our entire lives running from death. Trying to distract ourselves from the reality, someday I'm going to die. And you need to understand your running from wisdom. I'm not saying to be macabre and just sit around morbid and think about your death all day long. That's problematic as well. But you should set aside times to go, I'm going to die someday. That's how we get a heart of wisdom. Now, we also get a heart of wisdom by not just reflecting on our own finitude, but the way that you can face death and get a heart of wisdom in that way is only if you understand that somebody else conquer death for you. If you understand that you ultimately don't need to fear death. And you know who lived a really short life? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 30 years or so. And unlike us, if we experience an untimely, from our perspective, death where we die in our youth, nobody took Jesus' life from him. He says, I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. And that's what the Father sent me to do, to lay down my life. And do you know why he laid down his life and experienced an early death? Brothers and sisters, it was for you. And it was for me. So we don't have to fear death and the second death. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus dies a humiliating death before his enemies. It seems like his defeat and their triumph, but it's the exact opposite. And he experiences the fullness of the wrath of God after fulfilling all righteousness for you and for me. And he experiences the second death on the cross for you. The first death is physical death, separation of the body and soul. The second death is being cast into hell for all eternity under the wrath of God. And Jesus experienced that on the cross for you and for me so that we don't ultimately need to fear death. And so that's the only way that you can face death And get a heart of wisdom from it. Is if you understand that Jesus has conquered it for you. He's removed the sting of death. And so you can face it. Face the reality of it. And live in accord. Because here's the thing. Have you ever talked to someone who's had a brush with death? Or maybe they found out your illness is terminal. It's going to kill you probably pretty soon. I don't know if you've talked to many people who've experienced that. I have. And you know what they tell me almost universally? Boy, is that clarifying. 
It cuts through all the stuff that I thought was so important. I face death and I realize it's not really that important. And so your priorities start to fall into place. And brothers and sisters, here's the thing. That's exactly what we see happening with David. Because even those authors like Calvin who say that David is despairing in verses 4 through 6, just saying, Lord, wipe me out. They say the tune starts to change starting in verse 7. And why is that? Because David's now faced death. He's faced his own mortality, his finitude. And now things start to fall into place. So let's look then at David's hope in verses 7 through 13 as we wind up this psalm. David says in verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. You can understand why David asked this question. He's like, this is the lot of mankind. In Adam, he's fallen. He's guilty of sin. The Lord punishes him so that he dies. So we're all Abel's. Even if we live to be 70 or 80, we heard in Psalm 90, still we all come to an end. And so David is realizing this. He's facing his own death. And he says, Lord, so then where can I turn for hope? I can't put my hope in my spouse as much as I love them, ultimately, because they're going to die someday. As are my kids. As are my friends. As is my community. Everyone I know and love eventually is going to die. Six feet under, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And I can't put my hope in my reputation. That's going to eventually end. Can't put my hope in my job, in how hard I've worked, in my money, in my possessions, in my pleasures, in my comforts. They're all just a vapor, Lord. They're dust and shadows. These temporary things cannot bear the weight. They're not substantial enough to bear the weight of my eternal soul, says David. And so in whom or what can I hope? All of these things, they're like shut doors to me now. And so in whom do I hope? And David comes to the same conclusion that Augustine comes to much later after David in the Confessions, where he says, Lord, you've made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so David says, that's exactly right, Lord. My hope is in you. You're the one in whom I wait. Do you see how contemplating his own death has clarified things? He's now looking to the Lord. And so now he confesses in his heart, Lord, I hope in you. I wait for you. Now, where does he go right after that? Look at verse 8. Interestingly, he then goes, deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. So he says, Lord, I'm not ultimately worried now about my sufferings or my enemies or your discipline or my death or any of these things. I'm ultimately worried and focused on you. And what's the biggest (laughs) hindrance between you and I? It's my sin. It's my transgressions. Lord, I realize now my greatest need is not to be delivered from my enemies or even delivered from physical death or from your discipline. My greatest need is to be forgiven my sins, to be rescued from them, to be forgiven every single one of them. And David knows that he has that as he repents and he looks to the Lord in faith and looks forward to the coming Messiah. So you see how everything's falling into place. I'm looking to the Lord 
I'm repenting of my sin, looking to him for forgiveness. And then what does he say? He says in the second half of verse 8, do not make me the scorn of the fool. That word fool there, I think this is the last time I'll do this in this sermon. That word fool there is fascinating because in the Hebrew, it's the same word for Nabal. Remember Nabal? 1 Samuel 25 gives David and his men a hard time, won't support him, won't help him heckles him as he's on the run. And so what does the Lord do? He strikes down Nabal. Nabal's a fool. And then David marries Abigail, Nabal's wife. And what David is saying is, Lord, don't let me be like Nabal. Don't let me be given over to sin. What is the ultimate foolishness? It's sin. Sin is foolishness. Foolishness is sin. And so David says, Lord, don't only forgive me of my sin, but keep me from committing more sin in the future because, oh, how prone I am to it. You must not only forgive me, but keep me. And he's not only saying, don't let me participate in sin, but he says, don't let me be the scorn of the fool. Don't let me sin in the presence of my enemies so that these fools are able to scorn me. Keep me, protect me, defend me. David is seeing that sin is his greatest problem, and so he turns to the Lord for hope. And then, what else falls into place? Look at verse 9. In light of his death, his finitude, his vanity, David says in verse 9, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Interesting. David falls silent again, but it's different than in verse 2. How is it different? Remember, in verse 2, David is imposing silence upon himself. He's like, I'm going to sin with my mouth. I'm going to give my enemies opportunity to rail against me and God. So I'm going to impose silence upon myself. Here, what David is saying is, my mouth has been shut. Who does that make you think of? Job, right? Job is questioning the Lord. And then at the very end of the book, God says, buckle up, pal. Where were you? When I created everything. Where were you when I did this? Who are you, O man? And then what is Job's response? I repent in dust and ashes. I shut my mouth. It's been shut for me by your rebuke, O Lord. And so what David is saying is, he's saying, Lord, my mouth is shut. Why? Look at the last half end of verse 9. For it is you who have done it. He looks at all the suffering in his life. The discipline that the Lord has brought upon him. His enemies gloating over him. He looks at it all and he says, you know what, Lord? From first to last, you've brought it into my life. You are sovereign. You are in control of all things. You've written all these things to, be, to happen in my life before one of them came to be. And so who can stop your hand, O oh Lord? You're all powerful. I'm not. I can't stop you. And who can question the wisdom or goodness of your ways in my life? Because you are wisdom and goodness itself. And so David sees this reality and his mouth is shut. He says, I've got nothing to say. And I chuckle because he doesn't stay silent for very long, does he? Isn't this the way suffering goes? Isn't this the way despair goes? Up and down and up. The heights of faith and belief, the depths of despair and doubt up and down, 
And now David turns his attention to his suffering again externally. And what does he say in verses 10 and 11? He says, remove your stroke from me. I am spent. Literally, I am at the end of myself by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. What's David saying? He's saying, he uses a word picture. He says, you know when you grab a moth by its wings or you try to just capture it so you can get it out of your house and let it go outside? Never works for me. Their wings just like the powder or the dust or whatever that is comes off. And their wings just crumble. And now they're ruined. They're destroyed. Because you didn't want them to eat your wool clothing products. And what David is saying is, Lord, that's exactly what you're doing to me. Everything that I hold dear, you've just, you've crushed it. You're disciplining me. And David's saying, Lord, it's too much. I'm at the end of myself. I don't see the wisdom in this. So please stop. And brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me loud and clear on this. It's perfectly acceptable and fine for us and good for us to ask for the Lord to remove his discipline. Isn't that essentially what Paul does? Lord, remove this thorn in the flesh three times. Remove it, remove it. And the Lord doesn't. What does the Lord say? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I will sustain you through this. I have things you need to learn from this. I have good and wise reasons for this. And so even as we cry out for the Lord to remove his discipline from us for our sins, we also need to end it the way Jesus ended in Gethsemane, his prayer, Father, let this cup pass from me. And yet not my will, but yours be done. The Lord knows better than we do what we need to be conformed to his image. And so we should trust him, even as we struggle to do so under the knowledge that we are, you see that again, surely all mankind is a mere breath at the end of verse 11. In Adam, I'm guilty and I'm an able, I'm a mere vapor, Lord. I know I deserve these things, but I trust you. Please remove it from me. We sense David's desperation again in verse 12 as he cries out for the Lord to hear his prayer. But there's also some hope here. Look at verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. He says, Lord, don't turn a deaf ear to my suffering. And yet, even as he does that, as he prays that, there is some hope here because notice what he says. I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Lord, I understand that I come from a long line of people that you have been in covenant relationship with, and they understood that they had no lasting city here. This world was not their home. All of these things that are a vapor here today and gone tomorrow, myself included, this is not what you created me for. You created me for yourself. And so even though this pilgrimage is like a veil of tears where I lose everything and I suffer and my enemies gloat over me and eventually I'm going to die, though I'm an image bearer who suffers and struggles because I'm a sinner, my pilgrimage ends in a better place, in the celestial city where I worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. That's the hope that my forefathers looked forward to as they sojourned with you and now my pilgrimage is with you. 
And I know that I will reach the same destination. Here's the thing, though. As hopeful as that is, the psalm ends on a pretty deep bass note, doesn't it? Look at verse 13 with me. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. It's like the anti-ironic blessing, right? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. Some authors think that this is David just saying, you know what, Lord, leave me alone. Why are you picking on me? My life's short. I'm going to die soon. Just let me enjoy this life a little bit before I die. Leave me alone. That's possible, I guess. It's a real base note to the end of this psalm if that were the case. I don't actually think that's what David is saying, though. I think what David is saying is, Lord, stop looking at me in a displeasing way. It's the same sentiment in verses 10 and 11. Lord, stop disciplining me. Do you ever have children in your family that you didn't have to discipline them in certain ways? You could just look at them a certain way and they would like crumble. Maybe some of you are like, man, I wish I had kids like that. No. Some kids are like that. And David, though he has been smitten by the Lord, stricken by the Lord, afflicted by the Lord, He's saying, Lord, your displeasing gaze that I sense is too much for me. Remove your discipline. (laughs) My life is short, and I am going to die soon, and I would like to enjoy things a little bit before I go and be with you. But you see, brothers and sisters, the commentators, I understand why they go here with David ending in despair and saying, just leave me alone. Because sometimes we feel that way, don't we, as, as believers? Sometimes we feel like the Lord is against us, don't we? Sometimes I sit with some of you and I hear what the Lord has is taking you through. And my own heart is tempted to think, why, Lord, just lighten up a bit. Leave them alone. Isn't that enough? I don't understand. Some of you in those moments seem to have more faith than I do. But I'll be honest, I struggle with that as I listen to what the Lord afflicts you with. And so we're tempted to think, Lord, are you against me? If so, just leave me alone. And so do you know where we need to turn in those moments, brothers and sisters? Where do your eyes need to look? Where do the eyes of faith need to look when you're thinking, man, the Lord sure seems to be against me? Because you know what? Your life may look that way, and you may feel that way. That's where David's at. But where can you look? You look to the cross, and you realize, you know what? When I was God's enemy, in love, he sent his son And in love, his son came and experienced suffering that I deserved for my sin. He did that when I was his enemy. And so even though it feels like God is against you, like he's exiled you from his presence and from his blessings, it's not true. Behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. And how can you have assurance of that smiling face? It's not your circumstances, and it's certainly not your fickle feelings or mine. You turn your eyes upon the cross, and you say, Christ was cast out. He was treated as the enemy of God that my sins deserved, so that I am not treated as an enemy. Rather, I am welcomed in as a friend and as a child, a son of the living God because of how the Father in love treated His only begotten Son in my place. 
That is what you cling to. That is how, though he slay you, you can still hope in him because of what he has done for you in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so through this veil of tears, brothers and sisters, that this life is, we can look to Jesus and know he's right by our side, right? Isn't that what he says? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is it easy? Why is it light? I've stuck my head in there and I'm following right along with you. And I will lead you all the way home. I'm your substitute. I'm your example. And through the presence of the Holy Spirit, I'm carrying you all the way home. No matter how great the loss, no matter how great your despair, no matter how great your suffering. And I will not lose one of those whom the Father has given to me. This is our hope, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ, even in despair. So may we look to him together. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for how practical it is. And we do pray, whether we are in the midst of despair or we'll experience that down the road, that we would, body and soul, cast ourselves upon you and know that you care for us and know that you will, as we struggle to control our mouths, cause us to grow and know when to be silent and when to speak. Thank you that Jesus did that perfectly in our place and that as we contemplate the shortness of our lives, the reality of death, that Jesus has conquered it so we don't have to fear it ultimately. And that our great hope is you. And you will bring us all the way home through this pilgrimage. Cause us to be faithful knowing these realities are true. And armed with these realities, may we be willing to sacrifice everything to take your gospel to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.